0: Ladies and gentlemen, this
1: season three of the Middling Pop Culture Podcast Peak Show.
0: she's our mother kev she has cared for us our entire lives
1: oh really really randall well thank you thank you for telling me that our mother is our mother you know i built this house for her with my bare hands wow (laughs) welcome to peak show where we take the sourest of lemons life has to offer and make it into something resembling a podcast I'm your host, Manny Superfan Brie Rohde. And who is with me on the line today? I'm Caroline Sita, and I have come prepared to cry. <laughs> yes, we are totally prepared to cry. Today, we're here to discuss the trajectory, tropes, and peaks of one of my not so guilty pleasures. This is us. Um, as I mentioned last week, Peak Show is solidly back in TV Town for season three. And we have done a lot of comedies in the past. And I guess technically, last week's episode, Bojack Horseman, is a comedy. Um, that is partially because I watch mostly comedies. This is really the first time we're looking at a true drama or dramedy. I've mentioned on this podcast before that one of what well, this is one of my like recent TV shows um, and TV shows that I got into later. And this show is actually how I've managed to bond with other women my age. Yes. <laughs> so I figured why not have a good dish set on the show, um, which, by the way, is not just for women. My husband loves the show.
0: (laughs) My dad
2: does as well. So I can, I can attest to that. Open to everyone
1: yeah it's amazing so and i figured i'd bring in someone who's qualified not just by being a woman (laughs) i'm really excited to have caroline on because it's literally been her job to watch this is us from the second through final seasons she wrote the recaps on the show for the av club and i was such a huge fan of your recaps um all the analyses you did um the, the characters the themes and i think you touched on a lot of things that aren't so obviously talked about in like the social media chatter of the show so I was so excited that you agreed to come on because, and I'm just fangirling for a moment because I love your work.
2: <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much. And I truly loved writing those recaps so much. So it it especially means something when people enjoy those in particular. I think This Is Us is like, I have no desire to make a TV show, but if I did, I feel like This Is Us is the show I'd want to make. So I always <laughs> felt a deep connection to the show and to writing about the show and to the, the people that read those recaps.
1: Yeah, um, and I think, You know, when I look through the comments, I think a lot of people really got a lot out of your recaps. I always feel like there's there's two kind of I want to say, like incorrect camps on the show. There's the people who think it's just, you know, uh, sob fest, tragedy porn, like, you know, melodrama, which I'm always like, you're wrong. You don't have to like it, but, you know, give it a chance. Mm -hmm. Um, But then there's the people who kind of it, you know. It's beyond a water cooler show to me. It's an extremely character driven show. And I think a lot of people miss that and turn it into like the Twitter chatter show. And so I really appreciate something that says like, hey, this is a major callback to something that, you know, to a theme that they touched on in the second season or whatever. So but you are more than just a TV recap writer and you're certainly more than just one show. So can you tell us a little bit about where we can read your stuff? What some of your favorite subjects uh,
2: uh, are to cover? And if you have any recent publications you're really proud of? sure so i have been working as a film and tv critic for about 10 years now freelance throughout that so i never have just one place to point people to um although you can always go to my rotten tomatoes page and see whatever uh movies and tv shows i've covered there i feel like i tend to do uh superheroes and rom-coms tend to be my two uh, main columns of my work i i wrote a column for the AV Club for many years called "When Romance Met Comedy" that was dissecting the romantic comedy genre one film at a time. Um, and in terms of currently, my sort of my main project I'm working on now is my own podcast, which is called "Role Calling." It's role is spelled R-O-L-E. Always a great idea to make a podcast where you, you have yeah. to <laughs> whenever you describe it. Um, but it's me and my co-host Ned Baker. We pick an actor we love and we take five films uh, and sort of look at the trajectory of their career. So we've done everyone from like Meg Ryan to Zac Efron to James Dean and Jamie Lee Curtis and Dev Patel. And uh, recently we just did a series of specials on the Lord of the Rings films and sort of the acting within those. So things to offer for fans of, of any movie genre, we've got
1: you covered there. I absolutely have to check that out. You just named off some of my favorite celebrities. Um, I will also, because you brought up Zac Efron, I'm just going to digress to say people need to stop sleeping on 17 again.
2: What a fantastic, charming little movie. (laughs) Great movie. We can also at some point uh, transition into is Zac Efron Kevin Pearson? Because I feel like there's certain real life celebrities where (laughs) I'm like, they have certain neuroses that read very Kevin Pearson to me and Zac Efron is one of them. Kevin Pearson could play
1: um, an overly glamorized serial killer. I think. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs>
2: That's his prestige Oscar play.
1: Yes. So a tradition we have here on Peak Show, also a show that I occasionally have to spell out for people, so I understand <laughs> your sure. pain, is um, to share with myself and our audience a time in your life that you would describe as Peak Caroline. So. Tell us a moment in your life that is peak Caroline.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I thought it was appropriate given that we're talking about this is us to bring a childhood story of mine because I, I take comfort in sort of uh, realizing that I've like always been the same person I am now throughout my whole life. And so, I remember when I was like seven or eight years old, I asked for a set of Hot Wheels for Christmas, which is not that weird of a request. Except I didn't actually want to play with the Hot Wheels. I just thought it was bad that society was trying to tell boys and girls that they had certain toys <laughs> they had to play with so as a principled uh you know gendered stand uh, stance i i just decided to ask for this car set i didn't actually want to play with so do you remember if you got the hot wheels oh i did and not only did i get it i was recently home for christmas this year and i found it in my parents basement which is what reminded me of this story so it has yes. somehow been held on to throughout all of the years <laughs> That is excellent. I have um two little
1: nephews. They're two and a half and six. And um my husband and I were recently remarking on the fact that Hot Wheels really are one of those toys that have not changed at all. Oh, sure. A yeah. classic. Cause and like there are some classic toys that have like made little comebacks. My my older nephew has a light bright, which I'm like, Yeah fun. great. But yeah, Hot Wheels, you have they haven't had to do much to them. They're always fantastic. So um now uh, of course we're about to dive into the history of This Is Us, but uh we also like to talk about our history with us. So I know you were I have to presume you were a watcher before you became a recapper, but can you tell us a little bit
2: about what pulled you in and attracted you to the show? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, the short answer here is just Mandy Moore and Milo Ventimiglia, like, <laughs> two, truly two of my top aughts icons. Like, I was a huge Gilmore Girls fan. I was a huge Chasing Liberty fan. Uh, loved both of them. So the fact that they were in a show playing a couple was a huge uh, draw for me. I also just, I kind of enjoy keeping up with network TV. Like, I'm one of the few people still watching Grey's Anatomy. I really am a, I'm a ride or die for what's going on in the, the network TV world. So I feel like I was really on the um, the ground floor with This Is Us. I watched the pilot on a press screener. Sometimes TV reviewers will get early copies of things. And so I watched it early enough that it was actually an, a cut that revealed that Jack was dead, which then oh. they ended up trimming before the pilot aired. And they kind of over the first, I think, five episodes stretched out the mystery of is he still alive? Did Rebecca divorce him and marry Miguel? It was like they, it was an early indication that the show wanted to play around with mysteries more than <laughs> maybe it did initially. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I watched basically week to week. There was one week in the first season um, where the, the woman that was recapping this is us at the time needed to fill in that week. So I recapped one week, which was nice. Cause then um, when she stepped away for season two and the AV club said, Hey, we need another recap or I was like, I've done one before I can do it again. And then uh, for the next uh, five seasons, I did the weekly recap. So you know the show quite intimately, I would say <laughs> it's the unique relationship you form with the TV show when you're digging into it that deeply every week. Mm-hmm.
1: So I had, um, This is embarrassing. I've actually never seen an episode of Gilmore Girls. Oh,
2: you've got plenty of uh, joy awaiting you. (laughs) Well,
1: you know what? I what I have seen that I feel like this is my little contrarian. Like I'm more unique than other people. It's I'm a huge fan of bunheads. Oh, Um, sure. Sure. Being being a ballerina like I, I was in love with bunheads. But I was like, oh, I don't know if I could take like, what was it? Like seven seasons of this writing style. Sure. Um, so and I but I knew Milo from Heroes because mm-hmm. when I was in university, my roommates and I, that was the one show that we could all agree on. So um, I am quite the opposite. I was not an appointment or network TV viewer prior to the show. I was a trade reporter. And as I mentioned on last week's episode, we were talking about Netflix originals. My first trade reporting assignment when I transitioned away from um City Hall reporting was the streaming business, and so I was getting press screeners for the Netflix originals sure. and the Hulu originals, and um, this is how I became the only known fan of the past. No one else seems Ooh, to be. A fan yeah, person. I've never watched it. I just want Aaron Paul to be, to be happy. I want him <laughs> to play a happy person. Um, <laughs> but um, in summer 2016, my publication got canned, and I got transferred didn't lose my job, fortunately, got transferred to um, focusing on the media industry um, in the specifically the Canadian media industry. But most of what we run is just pickups from the US anyway. So from there on, I was going to the upfronts, I was um, doing TV um, rating recaps. So um, I had what I hadn't I hadn't no, because the upfronts in Canada are in June. So I hadn't seen anything about the series by the time it premiered. I'd heard like, oh, it's a real tearjerker. I knew my mom liked it. So I figured it was like your standard primetime emotional manipulation mm-hmm. stuff. Um, but then I noticed a lot of people that I knew to have very good taste liked it. And I, again, contrarian. Mandy Moore was my favorite pop singer when I was young. Mm-hmm, um mm-hmm big fan uh well because she sang in my favorite movie center stage you notice that that was the only media i consumed
2: um and so the center stage is for everyone it has to be said a classic for the ages
1: Peak peter gallagher that's what (laughs) it is um but um and i was drawn to the fact that they cast chrissy Mutz because i am um i am the only thin person in my family and i kind of can't stand the way i'm just like i just remember thinking like you know hey where are bigger people on tv they are normal people they have romantic lives they have careers um and so it i just that alone it meant a lot because it was like seeing my sister on the screen mm-hmm. um so uh i finally and the the ultimate give into it was i was trying to make new friends at work and i had to i was like i need a water cooler show this is this is an easy in so from seasons one to two i was catching up from season three onwards i was an appointment viewer I remember like. I would pick my treadmill on the gym based on which um which TV uh which mm-hmm. TV was in front of it. So um yeah it was um I've never had cable um and but when I lived in Toronto um people a lot of people don't know the CN Tower actually broadcasts radio and TV frequencies. That's the point of the CN Tower. It's not just a tourist structure. So I was I was perfectly aligned to pick it up over an antenna on a conventional network. So wow. that was yeah. And it was so, like, it was exciting for me because I, the only other thing I do that with the sports, like to actually like, okay, it's starting. Mm-hmm. And my husband got into it as well. So it was, and for me, like, I know we'll get more into like reviews of it as we go on, but I feel like it is a show that really like ended almost exactly when it should have went through a really good little phase with it. And it's got great rewatch value.
2: Mm, totally agree. So so satisfying to rewatch. I did a rewatch at the start of sort of quarantine and the pandemic. Um, Mm -hmm. I was rewatching my parents are watching for the first time. And I was doing that as I was then recapping season five that was airing live. And that was really clued me into how much the later seasons are just referencing these tiny little details that maybe were said in passing in the early seasons or filling in these gaps that were mentioned. And you truly get so much more out of it each time you rewatch i think Mm
0: -hmm.
1: yeah and like shows that are that long running and have um multiple timelines going of course there's going to be things that change and little details that they forget like i you know was rewatching early seasons just prior to this and like oh yeah that's right they said rebecca had a sister and then didn't Mm -hmm. do anything with that um and or like i noticed they were kind of inconsistent about when exactly um Kevin and Sophie got divorced. And you kind of don't care because, A, it's it's a long-running series. They get, they pick up a lot of threads that you wouldn't think you pick up. Um, but then also, like, they are so, like, Dan Fogelman, I got to give him so much credit for, like, the little breadcrumbs he's left. And because some of them, I'm like, I'm sure that was a breadcrumb left intentionally. There are others that maybe it's like they look back and think, hey, let's explore this further. Mm-hmm. So... It's it's really great writing stuff, I think, and really great story vision. And also the way they pivoted on a dime, like with COVID, which we will talk about more. Like, I know I was just explaining to my husband, well, I know they in season five, they were supposed to talk more about Miguel and um, Rebecca's courtship and Miguel's background. And they had to kind of cram it into one episode instead. It is one of my favorite episodes in Mm -hmm. the series oh man that episode (laughs) we'll get to that i can't
2: even hear that billy joel (laughs) song without just like falling to the i have to say there's such a stereotype of this is us making everyone cry and just and it's annoying to me how true the stereotype is like i will just think of certain scenes and truly be on the brink of tears that it's quite emotionally affecting
1: I I will say, and again, like the the kind of laying seats for what I will talk about later with Miguel, for me, it was, um, I was very, very close with my grandfather. I've talked on this podcast about my grandfather before. Um, He was my mom's stepfather. He married my grandmother when my mom was like five or so. And I've heard a lot about my biological grandfather and how great he was and how he always made my grandma laugh. And my step grandpa, my grandpa was a very different man. He was very pragmatic and warm and quiet and... So like, and my grandmother, I also lost her to, we lost her to Alzheimer's when I was 17. And the the only difference between Miguel and my grandfather was that my grandfather did outlive my grandma, which is mm-hmm. not often the case with caregivers of people with Alzheimer's or dementia. Um, but man,
2: that episode, I was just, I was seeing a Latino version of my grandfather, yeah. basically. It is remarkable that I think this is us. It really embodies this concept that it can. It's so specific in the things it wants to do. Like most mm-hmm. families are not uh, a a like a kind of this informal triplets where one is an adopted black child into a white family. And yet, mm-hmm. for as specific as it is, it it is so universal to people's experiences. I think like it it will really tie into. You know they'll just pull this little story, and it's like, oh yeah, that's exactly how my dad's childhood was, or oh, I remember this happening to me in my childhood. Like it's so strong at somehow feeling so universal and relatable, even for as specific as it is. Very much.
1: So onto the history of This Is Us. So series creator Dan Fogelman. Um, I had not seen uh, Crazy Stupid Love prior to This Is Us. I obviously watched it. Um, it was okay. It was mm-hmm. fine. It was fine. Um, so his original script was a movie about the lives of eight people who turned out to be octoplets. I tried to, like, kind of contextualize that in the time, and I'm not sure if that was, like, the, you know, Kate plus eight right. octomom boom. It. Maybe that was part of it. Um, I have to say, good on him for paring it down.
2: I think so. I yeah. think that was the right move.
1: Uh, smaller cast shortened eventually to 45 minutes after Fogelman struck a deal with 20th Century tele- Fox Television, who eventually sold it to NBC. So opposite of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Dan Fogelman's writer's room was reportedly 30% Black, uh, vastly outpacing industry standards. And it's probably worth mentioning also because this was from the start and not post-2020 when Mm -hmm. a lot of people were doing, I call it like apology equity, Um, which I mean, good for them. Better to do that from the start um, Mm -hmm. because it's just an acknowledgement that if you're going to have a black character whose experience is extra othered because he's a black character in a white family. Like you've gotta, you've gotta have black people writing this man. And um, and I Randall, Randall's everyone's favorite character, is he not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So um the show was renewed for a second season about halfway through the first season run. In my looking through the trade articles, most of the renewals came closer to the upfronts. Um, which really like contrasts contrasts with doing a Netflix show last week where the renewals come hours after they drop. Mm -hmm. Gosh, it's it's messing with my head reporting on these two types of shows there. It's almost an entirely different medium. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So season five saw numerous delays in production due, of course, to the effects of the pandemic, as well as Mandy Moore's pregnancy and subsequent maternity leave. Uh, With the run being shortened by several episodes at the last minute, um, prior to the sixth season, it was announced that that would be the final season. I also bring up the fifth season because when I rewatched it um, via streaming, it actually doesn't feel as disjointed as I thought it would Mm -hmm. with all the lapses. Like, they did okay, so... In terms of ratings and reviews, the show has always been seen as, I guess, one would call generally positive. Rotten Tomatoes has always been anywhere from 70, 90 to 90 percent grades. Um, This is not scientific, but it appears that the strongest and most frequently praised actor in the series from critics has always been Sterling K. Brown, especially in early seasons. Uh, Ratings were in the seven figures for the first four seasons, peaking at season two at an average of 17.3 million. Fifth and sixth were at nine and eight million, respectively, which, uh, gotta say, would still be a lot for Canada. Um, when I was doing my TV ratings uh for my own job at the time, it was uh in Canada. Just fun fact, it was always, I'd say, the top 10 show, rarely, but sometimes top five. Uh, and that's for the week. Um, almost always one of the time slots, and tended to perform best in eastern Canada, where I am. So um, I started to do a recap of the awards it's won and been nominated for, but there are so many and so mm-hmm. many great awards in terms of Emmys, Creative Arts Emmys, Golden Globes, British Choice. Um, very well-rounded because you see lots of acting nominations lots of guest nominations a lot of behind the scenes technical and creative Um, Justin Hartley probably the least nominated actor which I don't think is entirely fair Um, also Mandy Moore I think didn't get as many as she deserved I still couldn't believe she's only been nominated for one Emmy for the show
2: and then most recently it got I kind of assumed that the final season of the show would be a big darling at the Emmys and the golden globes. And it basically got shut out, which I still don't quite understand what happened there.
1: I thought that was going to be Mandy Moore's season for sure. She is so strong in that last season. She's probably my favorite part of the last season. Um, I also noticed fewer for Milo in later seasons, um, which I, I understand that I I thought there was going to be some recognition for him in Don't Let Me Keep You, which is Mm -hmm. probably like, even even ahead of Miguel, it's probably my favorite episode of the last season. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, so we're going to dive into some of the random scattershot topics. Um, (laughs) A lot of these topics actually, um, some of these notes that I pulled, I were inspired by your recaps. But so I mentioned First, I when I first watched the show, I first found season one very addictive—the kind of show that keeps you coming back from week to week. I love the pacing. Um, I was super into the characters, but when I rewatch it, it's actually one of the hardest re- like parts to rewatch. Mm-hmm. I, the most intriguing part being the Randall William plotline. Everything For else, sure. it feels very much like filler.
2: Yeah, I think Jack and Rebecca come across pretty well in season one as w- oh, yes. as yeah. well. Um, but I agree, it's like they hadn't figured out. Kevin and Kate and that is really really apparent and it almost feels like it just just this is so silly but like Randall doesn't have a beard in season 1 and Toby's hair is different like they look His everyone looks hairline. a little yeah. bit and Mandy Moore has the bangs like it's like it's almost like an alternate universe version of the show <laughs> where it clearly had not found itself yet and then from from 2 to 6 even in the off moments it feels i think a little more cohesive
3: mm. but you're
2: so spot on that the Randall Williams stuff is so good in season one that it, that alone makes it feel really essential.
1: I think if I were going back and rewatching it with fresh eyes I would almost think like why isn't this just the show like an adopted mm-hmm. child um, meeting his birth father because everyone else kind of felt like filler besides like you mentioned uh, Jack and Rebecca very strong aspect um, I really think the the kind of schism where you start to understand the value of the rest of the big three is the first big three trilogy and totally. number number 1 and man that completely changed my view of Justin Hartley and my view of Kevin. Mhm. Well,
2: and I think that this is exactly what we were talking about before that as the show goes on the show it deepens but I also think that retroactively deepens what came before. Mm-hmm. Because even though season 1 is weaker, I think it is interesting to see like where they take Kevin and then what seeds of that existed in season 1 and didn't exist and and um Yeah, I think that it's uh, the portraits of Kate and Kevin in the first season are like shallow in a way. Mm -hmm. And then from season two onwards, they lock into, I think, more of their like deep set anxieties and coping mechanisms and that like meaty stuff that I think really makes This Is Us shine. They weren't quite sure what they were for Kate and Kevin yet. Mm -hmm. And I totally agree that in that that big three trilogy, they locked into them, Kevin especially, Mm -hmm. uh, way more.
1: I love Parker Bates, um, who is the youngest Kevin, Um, I think, especially in season five, you really see him just become Justin Hartley. I Mm. understand. I understand why they didn't bring those three back. They well not didn't they couldn't bring them back, I think for the sixth season, Mm -hmm. like especially um, the young, uh, the young Kate, and I'm going to mispronounce her name, because anytime you throw in like a CZ, I know it's (laughs) very yeah. yeah my last name is four letters long I'm sorry I'm not great with, um but um Mackenzie she is she's like taller than all her brothers and then you mm-hmm. have to explain how she got very very short right, um, right. it's quite cute but um but the I mainly mourned the lack of those three actors in season six because I was so excited to see how Parker Bates was growing into that role because and you're right when you go back and you rewatch, like season one and season two little kevin is such a brat but mm-hmm. you come to see that the brattiness is so from pain um the the episode that does it all and i can't remember what the main plot of that episode was but um him and uh, rebecca waiting for the john smiley um Ugh, baseball cards thing. Yeah. oh that's that's such a that great storyline yeah um i do love that they call back to it in the finale like, i think john smiley had a crush on mom <laughs> <laughs> very cute um but so the one thing about the first season so many side characters who don't come back and yeah. they play like this semi-important role and just Moose. i think the show got way better at balancing characters at figuring out which side characters it wanted to invest in like that awful fat camp counselor like that was a plot that you could, I mean, you just could that literally
2: storyline is yeah. just i you know it's interesting i think that that the cape storyline coincided with a really great mainstream shift in like how we think about weight and fatness and Mm -hmm. and body positivity and I think that where Kate starts in season one where it feels like her storyline is like my main focus is like losing weight that starts to feel quite like retrograde pretty quickly and then the show has to shift but it like I think it took the show longer to figure out how to shift with her Mm -hmm. than with some of the other characters because they were so baked into this like quite old-fashioned and simplistic notion I think of like body image and weight and fatness and all that um and I think they get some more interesting by the end but it feels like it that it takes them a little bit to kind of catch up to the mm-hmm. cultural shift that was happening
1: I agree that it is very much a long road to get to and they finally I mean the um the episode taboo is the one where I think you finally start to under like see a much better representation of that um you know like for me like i said only thin person in my family also unfortunately the only one in my family who suffered from an eating disorder which came from the fact that i mean among other things being a dancer portrait of brie portrait of brie um but constantly hearing diet talk in my house Mm -hmm. and um that that episode is a really great example of how constantly hearing diet talk and constantly um, talking about shame with food, that doesn't help you because Kate grew up, you know, other shaming her and shaming herself, trying to shame herself to lose weight. And it didn't work. And I like that they, you know, like the story of her singing Kiss Me to Herself, like it's just such a sad little story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I said like the the sixth season really belongs to Mandy Moore, but I also think it really, really belongs to the character of Kate. Like I think the sixth season was the moment when we finally saw Kate really shine and Finally, like she becomes more than just like just her weight, but mm-hmm. it is still a factor that has made her life difficult and it I think they finally struck the balance between it
2: not con- in not controlling her storyline, yeah, they had to like wait to catch up to the moment, but I totally agree that they <laughs> in the end they get somewhere quite interesting with her and and just with her um I just love talking about these characters <laughs> so much I just, yeah, <laughs> this is the this is the joy um just her like there's such an interesting like there's like a passivity to her and she's just kind of a person who will kind of sit back and let the world roll over her, which I think is something she often shares in common with her mom, which is interesting Mm -hmm. that then they often are the two that butt heads so much. But I think the idea of like Kate finding her strength over the course of the six seasons is a really nice arc Mm -hmm. that she's on and like how she finds her strength in motherhood and in teaching and sort of like how that fuels every aspect of her life. The episode... Sorry to jump all around here, but the episode uh, in the 60s and where they go to San Francisco and they have this like, yeah, yeah, they just have this like beautiful little metaphor. It's so simple of her just like walking up this hill that seemed like it might be too difficult and how that act of like that small act of physical strength is this metaphor for the whole like emotional strength she's gained over her her 30s.
1: Yeah. And it's okay to jump all over because this is a show that by its very nature jumps all over. True.
2: True. (laughs) Great, but I will. Yeah, great point.
1: I will say the first season. Um, one of the other things that I well, I do feel like in the early seasons and the whole how famous is Kevin supposed to be, which you have touched on many times in your storyline and <laughs> in your story recaps. Um, so I I've said this before on peak show. I feel like one of the things having, I I feel like they like Kevin being famous because they like the idea of Kevin being rich. Writers love having mm-hmm. a single. Writers love having a single rich character um, because being rich is a way to write around challenges, you know, how a person can magically afford to fly across the country, how a person can magically like, you know, afford to have like all these privileges or all these fancy things. So um, I think I I sometimes feel like it might have been better, although I mean, with Kevin, there's also this like eternal quest to be loved and adored. So it, it does work. But I'm like it feels like you really just wanted to make Kevin rich. Um, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So, um, and in the early, in the first season, it was really a, like a driver for wacky storylines because I mean, rich people's lives are wacky. (laughs) Um, Sloane and Olivia feel like they're out of other shows. Um, On one hand, like it's kind of interesting because Sloane is living in her own dramatic world in which you're not sure if she's ever telling the truth or not, but that takes over the show. Um, I also think they descended into Wacky Town with Kevin a lot because I don't think the writers you know, had made Kevin into a strong enough character yet. Um, but I also will say that I see this with a lot of shows. It feels increasingly like Hollywood writers only know how to write about LA or the industry. Um, so they focus a lot on Kevin's professional life without a- actually anchoring him down to the real world somehow. And I get that it's not I'm not, I get that I'm not supposed to be able to relate to an LA TV star, but I like, I couldn't bring myself in the early seasons to care about like
2: who Kevin was sleeping with Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Well, I think one of the problems with the show is because it's so focused on this nuclear family unit, which I think is not the usual way you would tell a story about 30 somethings. You would not usually think it's going to be a sibling story, but they make that choice. And then there's like there's not enough room to then tell the complexities of each of their individual lives where Mm -hmm. presumably Kevin would be like going on a ton of auditions and having a ton of meeting with his agents and, and just doing all of the sort of bureaucracy and behind the scenes stuff of being a movie star, or, you know, when they get Randall into politics, like, they try to touch on (laughs) how much time that takes, but it never feels authentic or true. It's sort of, and I feel this way when the kids are teens, too, like, we don't, they don't feel like fully realized teens who have these, you know, rich high school lives, they feel like, the high school is barely on the margins of their story Mm -hmm. and so I do think the show kind of suffers from not having the time or space to build out everything for all of these characters but it's sort of like a a breadth over depth approach I guess where we're sort of getting these portraits of these different adult lives even Mm -hmm. if none of them is as deep as like it would be if this were just the Kevin show or just the Kate show
1: yeah I think I think I mostly found a balance. At times, I was like, I could use a little bit of a glimpse into their lives again. Like after the first season, they forgot that Randall played football. Or yeah, uh, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I kind of forgot that that was an element because that was another rivalry between the two. And um, you know, they especially when they toss in that little tidbit. It, it's a single line in season five, but he says Kevin says he was nominated for a Golden Globe for the Ron Howard movie we never saw him do a single
2: press conference are you kidding me Um, and for an actor of his level like i get some people yeah you're really famous you get a golden globe whatever it's not that big of a deal for kevin who has been chasing this acclaim his whole life to get a golden globe nomination would be a huge deal for kevin not a tossed off like joke thing
1: i wish during like the kind of like coverage of the early 20s back when he was still Logan Schroeder that we could have had like some sort of allusion to him um being in that indie movie where I kissed Topher Grace Mm. because let's face it Topher Grace still I I just watched that 90s show he still looks 21
2: oh yeah true
1: (laughs) not he does not age he does not age um but so just to wrap up the side characters in season one arc the one side character that I wish they'd brought back more consistently was Yvette um Mm. She and her kids, they showed up quite regularly in season one and a little bit in season two. Uh, And then it was so sporadic after that. And the one thing that I think could be interpreted as a little bit problematic is that her purpose and her children's purpose, I don't even know if her children have names, um, but it feels like they lacked a purpose beyond Randall needs black friends. Mm -hmm. So that feels almost like um, inherently hypocritical a little bit because she kind of like, And she calls this out, even at one point, like she shows up when Randall and Rebecca need advice on on like on how to deal with having a black son. And yet that is that that's kind of the only times that she shows up.
2: Right. She doesn't feel like a full family friend in the way that Miguel would feel like. Mm -hmm. Something I appreciated about season four is that that felt like the season where the show was going back to stuff it had done in its early run and sort of like reevaluating it. Like there's a season one storyline or episodic story where uh, little Randall starts going to like a dojo, mostly black dojo to sort of like be connected to the black community, which is something Rebecca and Jack are like intentionally doing to sort of help his sense of identity and then that storyline never comes up for the next two seasons and then in season four they bring it up and rebecca's like why did we have him stop going to that like was it because we were uncomfortable in that space and it was an interesting moment of the show sort of like critiquing itself for not following through on Mm -hmm. some things that had set up and i don't think they mentioned a specifically there but that feels to me like there was a level of the show acknowledging like yeah we didn't get All of these things right, and how we introduce them in the first couple Mm -hmm. seasons.
1: The one aspect in which I can understand also drifting apart and like, uh, is that I forgot that, you know, one of the things that drew Randall to want to go to Howard University was her sons because Mm -hmm. they were at Howard. And that's why it's also like the episode After the Fire, which is one of the most uncomfortable watches, but in which the one thing about Randall in the, you know, bad storyline, bad timeline in which he is rejected by William he is more drawn to Howard and more drawn to being with other black people. And so I thought that was a really interesting um, and again, probably better that they eventually had him switch to a black
2: therapist. Yeah. uh, Yeah. 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 There is a fast there. I mean, there are so many, this is the thing I think that gets missed in the discussion of the show, as you were saying early on, when it gets kind of this like warm sentimental blanket of a tearjerker, uh, that's kind of becomes its reputation. But I actually think there is such, there are so many meaty layers of, What is the show saying? What is the show intentionally saying? Like, it's interesting that Randall is processing his own, you know, uh, imaginary worlds this way. Like, what does that say about him and his identity? There are like layers upon layers upon layers you can dig into Mm -hmm. that are, are, yeah, really, I think there's quite a lot of depth there.
1: There's also something you, again, you mentioned this in one of your recaps, but I, one of the reasons why I like picking up the thread of the dojo and the writers kind of saying like, yeah, hey, we never went back to that is because There was a challenge that came from the show which is that having these three distinct timelines and we know that it culminates by 2016 or so the big three are miserable Mm -hmm. and yet there are a lot of plots that they resolve in these really touching healthy ways and so like yes the dojo is great because it gives randall this great connection to the black community but we know that by adulthood randall doesn't still has a very shaky relationship with his black identity even by by being a teenager and so um it's their way of saying like we have to you know acknowledge that this storyline alone did not resolve everything Mm -hmm. oh that the big three is still very they're they are still very broken by the time we meet them in the show
2: yeah well and it is that thing that i think it's always a fine line between what is like intentional and what is you can kind of read into it more than than was intended but i do think that there's this element of The Pearsons are a family that do like to bury things or put on a like a really positive outlook, which I think really stems from that being like Jack's main coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. And so in a way, I do kind of believe that they like would have one little breakthrough moment and then tell themselves we've resolved that we will never think about it again. And then (laughs) five years in therapy, they're like, wait a minute, maybe I didn't actually resolve that thing that I Like, I love in season four, again, they bring up this idea that Randall has really not processed this trauma of finding out that his mom knew of his biological dad and like they could have been in contact his whole childhood. And Mm -hmm. that's a storyline that in season one, they pretty quickly like put a nice little button on that, which feels in the time you're just like, okay, great, that's resolved. And I think it's so smart the way in season four, they're like, actually, that wasn't resolved. Like, that was Mm -hmm. not nearly enough work for anyone to have you know for Randall to have come to terms with that experience and that again is like a very clever I don't know if you call it a retcon I don't know if you call it just like long-term storytelling but it's a very clever use of the pieces on the board and the nature of how these characters interact with the world
1: yeah I don't know if um uh because with all the diversity in the writing room I I haven't looked into this but if anyone in the writer's room was an adoptee because Mm. now now, not being an adoptee, but um, lately, the last like six months or so, I've gone down a few rabbit holes of um, on TikTok from adult adoptees and discussing the trauma of adoption. Uh-huh. And um, it's great that we're on this thread because I wrote in my notes like I don't think I've ever seen a character be some become so unlikable but be salvaged in such a realistic and reasonable way that Randall was. The pandemic season was a bit convenient because it allowed Randall to be yeah. instantly a bit more sympathetic than I think he deserved to be. But I am really grateful that we got certain episodes and I am glad they introduced the concept of like the adoption support group and Mm -hmm. acknowledging that adoption, even when you are adopted by a wonderful family, adoption is loss, adoption is trauma. And you have, you know, the woman saying, I would rather be raised by my bipolar birth mother than my beautiful white parents. And also like shout out to bipolar representation, Mm -hmm. like, um, but That And Randall and his ghost kingdom. um, Yeah. Oh, the ending of that episode when he's with William and Laurel in the kitchen is so, so sweet. Yeah. The littlest Randall. I will also say on the topic of salvaging, I know and I still think it, I'm not sure overall how good this choice was. But I know with the revelation that Laurel survived the overdose. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was an eye roll moment. The episode Birth Mother was great. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. And it was such a wonderful, again, like I love when they do those self-contained single character focused stories. Um, it did bother me a little bit that we never go back to New Orleans after that. Right. We never reference that Randall has a sort of Vietnamese, like sort of stepfather. Right. Um, and like owned the
2: house in yeah, New Orleans, which felt like it was setting up something.
1: I actually thought um, a convenient way to call back to that would be because politicians when they get to like a more federal level typically move to a riding that they know. And like, that's yeah. what happened in in my own riding because someone was trying to run for conservative leader and I don't even think she still lives here, but, um, uh, and we elected her for some reason. Um, <laughs> but I, I was like, you could have said Randall's going to run in new Orleans. Sure. It be the first time he's changed States like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, really. um, Oh, okay. So on that note, I got to ask, cause, um, You've always asked, like, how famous is Kevin supposed to be? I'm trying to think of, like, a good real-life analog for Mm. how famous he is. So someone Mm -hmm. who's like mainly a TV star, made it work in a couple movies, famous enough to be in magazines, but also famous enough to have a decent amount of privacy. Yeah. And actually, the closest I can think of is Sterling K. Brown himself, which Mm. is, because I thought Justin Hartley himself, and then I'm like, I don't actually know if Justin Hartley is that famous. Yeah. I saw him in a trailer for, like, when I was, I don't remember what the movie was, I remember I was in the theater saying, "Ma, don't tell anyone. I know that's a terrible movie. I know that's not worth the, mo- the price of a movie tickets But there was a trailer that featured him. I'm like, "Oh, they're trying to make him work as a movie star." But like, I think, I think the character of Kevin Pearson is supposed to be a little more famous than that. I'm like, okay yeah. well, SKB, you know, he got he got into the Marvel verse. You know, he's, he's considered a very beautiful. Like, he if fifty if people still does those fifty most beautiful people, is he surely
2: on them? Like, sure." So I'm like, maybe that's the closest analog. <laughs> I I I like that. Although I do feel like Sterling has a certain like prestige about him. Like he is respected mm-hmm. as a dignified actor, rightly <laughs> so. But I'm not sure that Kevin was ever supposed to be on. Maybe he's supposed to have built up to that level. Again, it's like questionable. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're going with the This Is Us cast, I almost wonder if it's like Milo Ventimiglia. Mm, who did yeah. kind of start like a little bit more heartthrobby. Like people knew him from Gilmore Girls and they knew him from Heroes. Mm -hmm. but i would say he was less operating he got more into i guess the quote-unquote prestige lane with this is us Mm -hmm. and he did he was in one of those rocky movies with sylvester stallone and we know that kevin made his uh (laughs) his all i love all of the fake movies that they have kevin do and like the random guest stars that they'll have yeah
1: i think i think i found it ashton kutcher
2: oh yeah yeah
1: um, you know, because also Ashton Kutcher is a guy who tried to make it work in dramas and no one liked that. Yeah, that's true. And then just like became an all around good guy. Like, I think everyone likes him. But uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. I Yeah, that's funny. Also, there was um, of all the like bad side characters and wacky plots of season one, there's one very small underrated uh, scene. And that is Brad Garrett playing the network executive um, oh, yeah, in like, the sure. second episode. I, I also wish they'd brought Katie all back as his agent a few times because she's wonderful. She's great in everything she's in. But Brad Garrett, who as a millennial, I mainly know him from Everybody Loves Raymond and Big Goofy yeah. Guy, but he's great at being a terrifying network executive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. But it's hard because you have, like, I guess I know the name of the trope is like the celebrity paradox or the Hollywood paradox. And like, I have at times watched it to be like, are they going to acknowledge that Robin Williams exists because Mandy Moore has been in a movie with Robin Williams yeah. and stuff like that like are they going yeah. to acknowledge that Gilmore <laughs> Girls exists like it's a right. tough line to walk when you have a famous character
2: yeah and I think they most I did enjoy when they had fun with it when it was like yeah. we're gonna get M. Night Shyamalan <laughs> to come in and make a joke about <laughs> twist endings or I I think that If season one leaned too much into the wackiness of Kevin being a celebrity, I think the later seasons were able to sprinkle it in a little more effectively. And I, I always enjoyed when it was like, here's Nick, Uncle Nicky, like, having to deal with Kevin being famous and just having zero interest in, in any of that world. God, I love Uncle Nicky so much. I was,
1: I was rewatching and I don't, most people don't know this movie or the book that it's based on, but speak. Um, the movie came out in the, or the book came out in the late nineties. It was my favorite book in middle school. Um, and it was adapted into a movie in 2004 featuring a very young student, Kristen Stewart, and Steve Zahn is in it. Remember the Steve Zahn, uh, era? Um, of course. And we've got young uh, young Michael Michael Andorano as oh, kind sure. of like not quite love interest BFF, and I'm just like oh he's always had that wonderful like nervous mm-hmm. energy I oh what a-. and I love that you have the two most Italian sons imaginable, <laughs> and then he grows into the nice jolly Irish Griffin Dunn, and yet those oh. two actors match each other's energy better than almost any other time yeah.
2: actors in the series. So well they really feel like a cohesive Nikki unit for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned many times in your writing that this is us is largely a show about repression, which I'd say it has in common with previous episode of peak show King of the Hill.
3: Um, mm. especially,
1: especially male repression. Um, Jack is a prime example of that. I'd also say uncle Nikki, Kevin, uh, Randall, they're all, um great examples of that unhealthy coping mechanisms to the point where i have made a joke oh yes this is us is a show about four grown-ups with unhealthy coping mechanisms and a
2: very nice stepdad um (laughs) so (laughs) who honestly also i think has his own i love miguel but he has some problems in his original marriage and his initial kids as well i think oh
1: they really rehab that character (laughs) yeah 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 um so you talked a little bit about jack and accidentally teaching his kids the wrong lessons which is a great topic
2: yeah it so i reread recently the the initial like script that dan fogelman wrote for the this is us pilot which is like pretty similar to what gets aired with like some minor differences but one of the differences is that there's a scene that exists as it as it happens in the um the actual pilot that airs Dr. K comes in and he's trying to be like, like, Rebecca, this is a complicated pregnancy. I want to talk through like problems that could arise. And Jack is like, there's going to be no problems. Like we are destined to have three kids. This is going to happen. Like, I believe it'll happen. I want everyone to say it. And it's this like rah, rah hero moment. And then we get the scene where there are complications and the series unfolds in the original pilot or in the original script, rather, when the complications start to unfold, they specifically have Dr. K say, I tried to tell you this before and you shut me down and we don't have time to talk about it now. It's like a much more overt critique of Jack's sort of mm-hmm. like, almost like toxic positivity, I would say. And I think that that critique is there on a series-wide level, but you, it's not as like lampshaded as it was in the original script, which is mm-hmm. interesting that they made it sort of like a slow burn. Um, because I do think that that um, Jack is initially presented as this like this like perfect hero figure and all of Twitter's like, I wish he was my husband. Like he's the perfect husband. But if you actually unpack the way he moves through the world and the way he doesn't make a lot of space for his own emotional difficulties or for other people's emotional difficulties, like you start to see like a really believably flawed and complex character, mm-hmm. I would say, who is really heroic and who also is in many ways like a challenging person to be around and to have been married to and to have been raised by. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, even when you look at the fact that uh, the way Jack died, um, you could say on one hand, Jack died being a hero. Uh, You could also say that Jack died insisting on being a hero, uh, which is the same reason Jack went to Vietnam, because he insisted on being a hero. Um, And I I always think it's interesting because Milo Ventimiglia himself has said that he views Jack as a very traditional, like old fashioned man, which is not to say like politically. I think the Pearsons are always presented as like well-meaning Democrat types, you Mm -hmm. know, wanting to do the best for their black son and be progressive and everything but it's more, it's, it's not even like a dinner on the table by five, but it's that he has this vision of how, of the aggressive stability that he wants in his life. And he's going to power through for it. And like Mm -hmm. the times when Jack seems to outwardly struggle the most as a parent are when he realizes that he can no longer fix his children's problems, the way he thinks, like the, the simple way that he can. It's like, I'm a dance teacher, and I've mostly taught tweens. And I always thought I was most comfortable with that. And this year, I've been teaching five to eight year olds. And I was saying like, oh, I love how easy it is to solve their problems. Like when yeah. they're when they're crying and stuff, and all I need to do is hug them and they feel heard. And then I real, I'm like, oh, man, like it is actually really hard solving teen and tween problems. Yeah. Like,
2: <laughs> There's the first episode I ever recapped was the I think it's the big three's like 10th birthday, maybe. And they have a scene yes. where Kate's really sad because I think her friends have gone over to Kevin's party. And Jack tries to do this like goofy dance to cheer her up. And like, it doesn't really work. And that's yeah. Jack realizing like, oh, yeah, these little things I used to do that solved everything are no longer mm-hmm. enough to to solve it all. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to me the like the fan conception of Jack, which I do think is so he's just he is put up on a pedestal, I think, in much of the fandom in the way that he is for the Pearson family. Yes. But if you actually look at the things he does, like even choosing to adopt Randall, I think on the one side is this truly beautiful like act of the making lemons into lemonade and like giving Randall a beautiful home. And like it is genuinely a really beautiful thing. It is also an act of our baby just died. I don't want to acknowledge that I'm not coming home with three babies. So I will make sure we come home with three babies and then Mm -hmm. like not leave a lot of space to discuss the loss that is also like foundational to to their family unit.
1: Yeah. And like, that's why like the only, it kind of, again, stopped being like, it was a little bit of a thread and then it didn't come back until Kate has a miscarriage. And Mm -hmm. you almost, I you feel horrible saying that. You almost forget that Rebecca Absolutely. experienced uh pregnancy, infancy loss. Yeah. And I also am like, even like not to sound lighthearted about this, but I'm like, you guys were worried about having three children and now you are insisting on walking out of here with three children because the most damaging thing to Jack is things not working out like he yeah. thought they would. Exactly. Um, yeah. And
2: and the other such extreme example of Jack, it's like when you look at what his relationship was like with Nikki growing up. You look at the fact that he literally went to war for him, right? Like, he enlist, he he lied about his own health in order to go to war. Mm-hmm. And then when he felt like Nikki had crossed a line, he pretended he died and never spoke to him again. Like, yeah. it is <laughs> such an extreme, like, both sides are so extreme. And it's like, that's how Jack can operate. It has to be either I am 100% this or this doesn't exist to me like it is so extreme to pretend your brother died to your wife and your children for your entire life like <laughs> yeah. that is
1: wild
2: it's wild the also extremely black and
1: white and extreme nature of things um is well this is an extreme version of it um i think the smart it's it's a smart trait to add in for a man who is an addict and yeah. who struggles who struggles with addiction and we see throughout the show like doesn't entirely know the proper ways to address it and he even says the first time he got sober he didn't want to do aa and the 12 steps and he wanted to box it out instead which brings me to one of my favorite jack accidentally teaching the wrong lesson moments which is randall and running and teaching Mm -hmm. randall to run to relieve stress and you'd be forgiven for thinking in that which i think it's the fourth season that you see him teach randall to run you'd be forgiven to think that's a touching, important moment because the art direction of it, the music, the framing of it, it seems like this beautiful moment between father and son. But we've seen as early as the first season that if Randall, Randall is almost always seen running when when bad shit is going on in his life.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It is threaded through very consistently from the beginning.
1: Yeah. Um, And like, it's probably a more subtle version of like, the episode where the kids get chickenpox and he tells Kevin to toughen up because there we literally see the montage of him toughing through his injury and toughing through football. Mm-hmm. So there's a more obvious one there. But um, it, it makes me think of a, a lot of the way we put people who pass away on a pedestal to an unhealthy degree, especially people who pass away young because they do not, we don't have a chance to realize their flaws. Um, or even in my case, like when my grandmother died in 2007 and for about five to 10 years, she was untouchable. And you know when, like you know, like the Pearsons, we get into our 30s and we start realizing, hey, I had a traumatic childhood. And um, yeah. in speaking with my mother about that, and I'm just like, well, you know that you had a traumatic childhood, right? Like you, you've said yourself, your mother yelled, or your mother did this, and it's like we couldn't talk about that because your mm-hmm. mother died. But now, mm-hmm. like, we can talk about it. So this show really highlighted everything Jack did for the family. Starting in, I'd say, the fourth season, we get a lot of great Rebecca content, and we see some of the amazing things that Rebecca did for the kids and examples she set. Um, like, but Jack and yet Jack's parenting is the one, especially at the beginning of the series, that the kids remember as the better, more mm-hmm. effective parenting. Frankly, because he hasn't lived long enough to become resented, whereas yeah. Rebecca has. Not to say yeah. Rebecca was a perfect mother,
2: but well, and I think it's also that Rebecca herself builds that image as a way that's like what she i think in the the um big therapy episode that they have mm-hmm. i think that's season two maybe season three i can't remember but yeah. kevin goes into um rehab and they have a big family therapy it's a great scene they all try to process in their like repressed perfect pearson way where they're like i'm sorry i accept your apology and then the therapist is like none of us <laughs> honest and rebecca says something like they the kids were only ever going to have 18 years of their life with Jack. So like the best thing I, from her point of view, she thought the best thing she could do was just like, keep up the idea that he was perfect. And that Mm -hmm. if there was a, you know, if they were going to hate someone better to hate her than to hate their dad, that they didn't have time with. Mm -hmm. And I think also the Jack Rebecca dynamic is a mirror of like, what a lot of heteronormative couple dynamics are, which is that the dad gets to be the fun one. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mom has to be the boring, responsible one who like actually will dole out the punishments and actually deals with a lot of the, the little details. And that's not to say that. Like that either parent is bad, right? Like, I think I, the show is not about being like, actually, you thought Jack was good. He was evil the whole time, exactly, or, yeah. you know, and it's not about being like you thought Rebecca was bad. Actually, she's good. It's like they both were just deeply flawed, deeply human people who probably did better at parenting than a lot of people do, frankly, like especially if you look at like jack literally growing up in an abusive environment like breaking that cycle mm-hmm. um is huge uh but yeah i think that the show becomes this like not maybe not critique but like commentary on the way that this like conventional idea of mom and dad as seen in sitcoms throughout history um mm-hmm. how much that kind of can benefit the father and and be a lot more difficult for the the mom to navigate and not getting the the sort of kudos that the dad does
1: Particularly when you consider that Rebecca sacrificed so much to simply become a mom when she wasn't even sure that she wanted to become a mother. And that's another interesting thing that I find like black and white. And as a as a child-free woman who loves children, if it's not obvious, I love children. (laughs) I think they're very good for my mental health. Um, but I have no desire to be a mother. But um at the same time, you know, it's it's um the parental version of the virgin whore dichotomy, which is there's the I have always wanted to be a mother, and I definitely do not want to be a mother. And Rebecca has never says at any point they don't want this, mm-hmm. but she's not sure, and she certainly doesn't want to lose her identity to motherhood. And what happens? Exactly that. So, yeah. yeah, the the show has very interesting takes on motherhood and obligation.
2: It's like I think it's bittersweet. That's I feel like the word that I use to describe more than anything else in my recaps. It's like it is sad that Rebecca had these dreams of sort of breaking these like conventional roles that she grew up in in this like 1950s world where women were very much slotted into one role and she wanted to break that and like in some ways she did i think she had a more equal partnership than a lot of people in the 80s and 90s did but in other ways she did wind up trapped in her own version of that and sort of assumed her identity to her family and it, and, and but then she loves her family and she finds so much like value in being a mom and I think that it's just like the show is quite honest about like she gave up some things and that's really sad but she gained some other things and that's really joyful and like that both can coexist at the same time
1: absolutely so I mean I've talked a little bit about how the show is pro-step parents I don't I feel like that's a great thread it's not necessarily the deepest thread but I also think it goes side and side with this the show's insistence that first love wins which when i look Mm. back actually isn't that strong like i think they showed great restraint by not getting nikki together with uh with sal yeah and in fact it's very sweet that she barely remembers him
2: it was Um, that was a nice touch
1: yeah um i still the one thing i still don't know how i feel about is um kevin getting together with sophie uh in the end um mainly i think also because sophie Um, And we can entirely blame the COVID season for this. Sophie had been out of his life and out of the show and out of our collective minds for about two years. So it felt like an odd thread to pick up. But aside from Kevin and Sophie, like, oh, sorry, one moment. Uh, Oh. My recorder stopped recording, but we're all good now. Mm-hmm. Aside from Kevin and Sophie, like you got Randall and Beth, which, you know, mm-hmm. meeting meeting the person you marry in college is not that uncommon. Agreed. Um, and even like implying Jack and Rebecca meet in heaven, you know, first love is best love. But again, we show her having a very healthy, wonderful second marriage. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, like I, I'm probably not giving the show enough credit to say it insists that first love wins. I just think I felt a bit disappointed by Kevin and Sophie because they're rekindling like most things in the sixth season felt incredibly rushed
2: mm-hmm. yeah I think that there could have been there's again I I feel like season four was it such an interesting like turning point for the show and that of all of the the <laughs> of all of the what I will just say like minor inconveniences of the, of the pandemic like a show not reaching just, its potential yeah. not the worst thing that happened in the pandemic but of all the minor inconveniences that happened it is quite a bummer that I think that that pandemic season did take some turns that felt like they were not picking up exactly where season four had left off. And I think that there is, there is an interesting thread with Sophie in season four where Kevin goes to her mom's funeral and she's like looking at these rings and remembering the mom sort of saying maybe Kevin's, you know, not ready yet, but maybe he will be. And it feels like there could have been a more elegant way to weave her back in. And that, I think the end of the last season, which I did like overall, but I think it at times got a little too clever for its own good with the sort of like, we're jumping five years ahead and now we're existing in this sort of like middle timeline. It was like kind of fun in the moment to guess what was going to happen, but I think maybe a little more simplicity could have benefited that sort of second half of season six. Mm -hmm. The, um,
1: the one effect that they use, because I, I had this complaint around season five and then in season six, it it mostly subsided that it painted a really freaking rosy picture of Alzheimer's at first. um, Yeah. That Rebecca seemingly takes for like that, because when the, when the possibility that I think something's wrong with mom is introduced, she is a lot worse than Mm -hmm. what she is in season five. She is so like, you know, Because I remember, like, again, I can only point to my experience with my grandmother, but like, it's, you know, what I noticed, like, in the early stages, Rebecca never trails off. She -hmm. never, you know, loses focus with what she's doing. And I feel like it's because partially like the writers were just starting to really explore, you know, Rebecca's youth, Rebecca's, you know, feeling, you know, trapped in certain roles that you don't want to lose Mandy Moore to that. And you don't want to lose out on, you know, the grandness of her performance. And like the, you know, even Rebecca suddenly feeling this sense of freedom from her because of her diagnosis, like that's great. But I'm like, this sure is a rosy picture. And then it's almost a non-factor in the fifth season. Um, Especially like that, the wandering episode, which I don't know if this is because of, they had to, they had to really, kind of course correct that and, um, and compensate for the COVID factor, but, um, that it's like, oh, it was just a reaction. It was a medication, just yeah. a bad reaction. I'm like, yeah. oh, okay. So she's not actually at the stage of getting lost outside yet.
2: Um, then in season am- six, I- it's like, you. Know, Sorry, I just I just want to see the alternate universe of what season five was going to be had the pandemic and 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 Mandy Moore's pregnancy and maternity leave, I do think was a big factor in sort of how they took Rebecca's story as well. Sorry to interrupt you, but I'm just like so curious about what their original
1: plans Mm -hmm. were and how
2: much they had to pivot stuff. Absolutely.
1: Um, Yeah, the only other device like I mean, Rebecca seeing Kevin as Jack, I mean, Mm -hmm. I I have seen my, my grandmother called my um, used to call my uncles by the wrong names as well. And stuff, uh, you know, everyone was Bill, which was my my grandfather's name um, except Bill was still alive and sitting right there, which was, mm-hmm. you know, I can laugh at that now. But, yeah. um, but at times I just think the device was too convenient. Like her, you know, talking to him as though he's Jack and saying all
2: this wise stuff, like.
3: Right. Uh, right. I'll, it was.
2: It, forgive it. But, I do oh. think if there's a, law of this is us it it is that it it dances up against it dances up against i think quite a lot of intense topics of like the darkness that exists in real life but it doesn't fully want to depict those so Mm -hmm. it is kind of like we leave the teenagers i think at what is theoretically going to be sort of the darkest years of their life that lead them into where we pick them up in the pilot as these like mostly lost 30 somethings but like those years we're kind of going to skip because we want to acknowledge they were dark, but we don't want to live in the darkness. And I think Mm. you could certainly say that about Rebecca's Alzheimer's. It's like, we want to go right up to the edge of her getting these symptoms. And then we can kind of flash forward and show the end of her life, but we're not going to sort of really live in the Mm. darkest realities of what the day to day is like. And that's just, I guess that's inherent to what the show is, is this sentimental portrait of, of, what life can be like
1: yeah um so since we're veering towards this i know this is such a dicey topic with season five in the rearview mirror i want to kind of give my impression of how it handled the covid yeah. season overall because it was not the only show that tried to do a covid season but and i tried not to be bothered by too many things like why are there so many people at randall's family dinner and stuff. <laughs> but um like because people were breaking covid rules a lot um True. and i also know that my perspective is a little skewed, because in Canada, we had slightly stricter lockdowns for longer, we still had a mask mandate until like early to mid 2022. Like after the first Omicron wave, I think was when we finally dropped it. And I had, um, I had traveled by car to Ohio for a work conference in April 2022. And I walked into the conference center in my mask. And like everyone, this was a conference about like climate change and environmentalism. So all very progressive people. And someone goes, Oh, look at you, Brie! you're still all paranoid. And I'm like,
2: Oh, Mm, interesting.
1: (laughs) sure. I am in Ohio. Um, So I was like, I'm willing to acknowledge that I was in a bit of a bubble, but I think this is us and many other shows that attempted to do the pandemic season. For one thing, like all of us, underestimated how long the pandemic would be. One thousand percent. They realize and I think if they could look back and realize that this is going to remain a threat in our lives for years that they probably would have not done a pandemic season. Um the it's funny because the key to good writing is restriction. You write very mm-hmm. well when you have restriction, but um and I think in the room is a great example of that. Probably like a just a fantastic way to use these pandemic normalcies like FaceTime, like one mm-hmm. person being allowed in in a delivery room. But it became clear that they felt too restricted. And you can tell because for some episodes the solution to everything was oh they, they we need to get them somewhere we'll just say they tested and quarantined like yep the, it, yeah. and especially i think there was one i think it's when randall goes to new orleans and the line like thanks for testing and quarantine it's so clearly adr <laughs> sure. and i i hate obvious adr and so i'm like i'm i can just assume you guys yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. i it was i mean i think that this is us was the first like big network show to come back during the pandemic. I distinctly remember the NBC put up like a press still of Kevin wearing a mask and the whole yes. world was like what this is going to be on TV like it felt <laughs> wild. And then like you say some other shows followed suit, but like this is us really like broke that seal early and I think I agree with you that it was a mistake to try to be like topical in that way because it they weren't doing it authentically so we weren't getting the value of that. And then I think ultimately like people are like, why, you know, why wasn't there more art made about the pandemics in the 1900s? It's because kind of like living in a pandemic is dramatically uninteresting. Like being Mm -hmm. locked in your house is sure. If you were a show that could be that good at writing where you were, you can just write these amazing scenes of people being locked in a room. But I think for this is us, there is such an element of like Visual storytelling and montage and people flying around the country like it needs all of that to sort of function, and so I don't think it could really uh embrace the pandemic as like an interesting addition. It is also mm-hmm. wild it is wild to me that the one and only time this is us did a like one year flash forward was to august twenty twenty like my god, like-, <laughs> like any other show you could say, okay, we don't need to. You know, we can say the pandemic's happening. We don't need to retcon anything. But having been like, we had a flash forward to the middle of a pandemic. We've decided to embrace the pandemic. So don't think about why Rebecca was wandering around in a sort of she mental stupor. She literally goes to a restaurant with like a buffet. Yeah. I feel like like it's just like, <laughs> and no one's wearing a mask. Which, if you were actually going through like a, a memory episode, I feel like the whole world wearing masks would be super disconcerting.
1: Facial blindness is apparently like a thing, and facial memory like you you lose the memories of faces so which again weird thing we talked about in our bojack episode last week um Mm. because bojack has one of the more chilling portrayals of alzheimer's and memory loss that i've seen um bojack has chilling portrayals of a lot of things Mm -hmm. um so yeah like that the one thing that I also found incredibly tasteless, I get it. I can accept that season six, we wanted to forget about it. And they use the time skip to kind of cheat that. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, okay, Kevin's literally sitting in a hospital and no one in the background is even wearing one. Come on. Yeah. So okay, but like I one thing I do not like, because again, like I, you know, I live in a very conservative county, you know, I sometimes feel like the only person who wears a mask to my grocery store. Um, and I'm not, I'm not like Captain Strict anymore. I can't go to restaurants here because I feel like the only vegan in my county. So that's mm-hmm. not a problem. But like, I don't make jokes about COVID. I don't make yeah. jokes about getting COVID because, you know, I, I know people who have lost their parents and lost people to COVID. And the fact that the very first episode of season six contains a joke about I tried, I wanted to lick the seats in front of me to try to avoid to try to give myself COVID. I'm like, oh, dude, yeah.
3: that's
2: so tasteless. Yeah. And
1: and this is us rarely makes jokes I would call tasteless.
2: So Yeah, I think. I don't know. It was just such a wild time to have lived through like they had to make that decision so quickly, as you're saying, like, if the show started airing pretty early into the pandemic, they were working on writing those scripts, like, far earlier. Mm -hmm. And I know that they were in a tricky spot. I almost wonder if it would have been better if they had just taken a longer break before deciding what to do. Although maybe they were feeling the pressure of sort of they have a pretty big kid ensemble. So maybe they were feeling the pressure of not letting them get too old. (laughs) They were trying to outrun puberty, very obviously. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Maybe that was part of it. But I I wish they had sort of taken a little more time to think how do we want to, in what ways do we want to be topical and in what ways do we don't? And how can we keep what was building in season four, which I do think they lose a little bit of in in season five.
1: Yeah. Uh, Before we get to the lightning round, one last thing I want to hit on. Aside from being pro-step parent, the show is also very pro-divorce. Um, Mm -hmm. which like, I loved the way they handled and wrapped up the Kate and Toby, uh, arc because like, again, you see them lay little seeds of, is this the most functional relationship? Like, is this a relationship that is maturing well? Um, I mean, how healthy their divorce was, was very ideal a little idealized, but and, you know, Philip, probably the most underdeveloped character. I Mm -hmm. don't even think he has a last name. Um, (laughs) sure. (laughs) But, um, and oh my gosh. The story about his blind wife leaving him and getting hit, uh, getting into a car accident, might be like that. Reads like someone wrote a parody script of *This Is Us*.
2: You know, I think I really <laughs> that was so bad I blocked it out because yesterday yeah. I w- I read through all the Wikipedia plot summaries of just the entire show, so I was like, okay, I want to put my I don't have time to rewatch the entire thing. Oh, yeah. I'll put myself in the mindset that way. And I read that, and I was like, that happened. And I I had to have blocked that out because it was like too much, even for this show. I think
1: yeah but like in you know the fourth and fifth season we see them go through so many rough patches kate and toby and they patch things up and i kind of started thinking like oh this sure is convenient season six the message is this is what happens when you rush to patch things up Yeah, and they literally have a very obvious but not too strained metaphor of toby failing to properly patch up a leak in their ceiling like um and again they come they come back to that and i
2: i love it um I think divorce can be a very positive thing, you know? Well, and it's similar to what they do with Jack, where you can't quite tell if they are intentionally exploring flaws or just unintentionally sort of writing repetitive conflict. And I think it was such a nice surprise that the show really knew what it was doing with Kate and Toby. And yeah, I agree. Like, I think that the show finds, if again, it's that bittersweet quality of finding hope in difficult situations. And like, yeah, it is, You know, Randall had a lot of trauma from being adopted, but also got to grow up in this beautiful, loving family. And Kate and Toby, their marriage didn't work out long term, but they had a beautiful like life that came out of those years they had together. Like, I think the show, it just balances the light and dark really well. And yeah, it leans more on the sentimental side. But I agree. It's a really nice sort of message to put out there that all families look different. And like, Mm -hmm. however your family looks, there can be beauty and, and value in that. Yeah.
1: All right, so we come to my favorite part of the show which is the lightning round um, because uh, you know the things I love most in this world are TV and hockey and like a good hockey boy, I ask you to act quickly and don't think very much okay um, so which of the big three do you relate to the most
2: Randall for sure mm-hmm. and to the point where I think... Randall is probably in the, like, top three fictional characters I relate to. <laughs> like, Yeah. What What are what, some
1: of the aspects about Randall that you relate
2: to? I would say that in the episode where Randall first goes to therapy and kind of starts spiraling about... I was like, did the writers reach into my brain and take my daily thought process? His his idea of like, I'm the only one that can be responsible for this. And if I did not do this, the entire world would fall apart. And you think I'm not self-aware enough to know that this is a flaw. I know it's a flaw, but I've decided it's a good flaw. So therefore, I will not ever deal with it. There's a level of uh, Randall's anxiety and responsibility that I relate to on such a deep level and felt so uh, seen and represented by.
1: Mm -hmm. I I agree. So I am a bit of a mix of Randall and Kevin because I think I have both a superiority and inferiority (laughs) complex at the same time. Um, I have two siblings. I am the youngest and I at times think I am so much better than my siblings. Mm -hmm. I think I'm more responsible than them. I think I care for my parents more. Um, You know, I I said this on last week's podcast, Andrew, if you're listening, I don't mean that. I love you. You're the best big brother ever. Um, But uh, yeah, like I, Uh, So I have that superiority complex like Randall, and I am aware of it. And I also, like Randall, use self-awareness as a you can't criticize me because I know it. Um, Yep. But like Kevin, and uh, I hate hate to say this because this does blame my parents a little bit, um, because I was always the content one as a child. um, And my siblings, you know, had their issues with behavior or academics or whatever. I uh, was the one they always assumed would be okay. And mm-hmm. so they kind of left me to fend for myself a little bit, which is the entire premise of number one or the first pool episode, like yeah. the assumption that Kevin will just be okay. So I'm a bit yeah. of a Kevin. Which is so funny because Randall has that sometimes
2: too, where they'll <laughs> be like, Randall, you're the one that's really responsible. We don't need to worry about you. It's interesting mm-hmm. how the brothers each remember being the one that is like less cared for, but they're, it's actually pretty evenly split when we're watching the sort of more objective. Very flashbacks. much so.
1: All right, so this might be hard to pick just one, but one moment Mm -hmm. on the show that made you ugly cry.
2: I mean, again, I could literally, it would probably be easier to list the moments that did not make me ugly cry than to Mm -hmm. list the moments that did. But one that I think is a little bit underrated or forgotten is it comes from season one. It's the episode where Randall has just found out that um, Rebecca knew about William's existence for all those years. And it's not a great episode. He like goes to the cabin and winds up like tripping on mushrooms and- (laughs) A season one episode? It really was the episode is a little bit questionable. But at the end of that episode, Randall goes to Rebecca or oh, to older Rebecca and, and he's like, you know, I listed all the reasons that I was mad at you for keeping the secret for 36 years. And then he says, but also you kept that secret for 36 years. And that must've been incredibly lonely for you. Mm-hmm. And she just like bursts into tears. And he doesn't go so far as to say like, we're okay. Like she tries to hug him and he, Oh, no, I'll see you at Christmas. Christmas. Exactly. Yeah. But that moment, like the, the Randall's ability to step outside of himself and have empathy for his mom while being hurt by her. Mm-hmm. And like Rebecca's breakdown over it. It's just like, that sums up their beautiful and also like really twisted relationship. Mm-hmm. And Oh, the, that moment, just like anytime, mm-hmm. really anytime Mandy Moore is old Rebecca, like I, I just uh, anything about old Rebecca makes me cry. But that scene in particular.
1: Yeah. Um. So the obvious one for me would be Miguel, that the entire yeah. episode, like you said, that Billy Joel song um, rips my heart apart. But I am going to go with one that um, I showed great restraint by not talking about for the whole episode, but Kate's abortion. Um. Yeah. So I again just as I will go on and on on the show about like, yeah, I got bipolar disorder and I'm awesome. I don't, I I don't make a secret of the fact that I have had an abortion and like Kate, it's because I was too young and not with a person that I should have been with. And I, I mean, there's not a lot of abortion depiction on television, Mm -hmm. especially network television. And when it is the few, um, the few, like, I mean, Sex Education, actually, I think, had a great depiction of abortion that shows it as a fact of life. And it's really hard to balance something that even if you do not regret it, it is a very physically draining thing to go through. It's Mm -hmm. a very emotionally draining thing to go Mm -hmm. to. And um, the fact that Kate had to go through it alone, which fortunately I did not. But um, like, because, again, Kate, you know, where everything has been put on the brother's shoulders, Kate has been really handheld her entire her entire life and to see her have to go through this alone after an incredibly isolating relationship um i just like you
2: you really want to hug kate after that yeah and also such an interesting example i think again of the repression where it's not she's not repressing it because she regrets it but she even as an adult like it takes her so long to just speak to toby about it and like that Mm -hmm. speaks to these sort of like coping mechanisms that they it's like they're they clinging on to these coping mechanisms that they no longer need. And it's about like learning to move past them. And I think that, that her finally opening up about that, even if I feel like that is a storyline that to me feels like it's clear the writers thought of it later. Like it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. feel baked in from the beginning, but I think I that it's a it's a, um, its a nice example of like giving her again more depth that it took her longer to get than than
0: mm-hmm.
2: the other members of the big three.
1: I agree with that. So, who do you think is the best time shift actor on the show to compliment their principal or present day actor?
2: Well, we mentioned them before, but I do think it's it's Griffin Dunn and Michael Ingra- Ingarano as Nikki. Is it a hard G? Maybe it's not. I,
1: I have no idea. I am very sorry. Again, my I last
2: think name it's is four Ingarano. Letters. But yeah, the, Ita- yeah. The, the Italian last names can throw me a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that they're such a, they are the ones where it feels like they both have equal co-ownership of nikki like they both Mm exist exist as as nikki in my mind as opposed to like obviously sterling k brown is randall and then there's the flashback randalls the others are Um, compliments yeah Yeah. exactly and so i think that they do such a nice job of like how this young shy young man grows into this really introverted older Mm -hmm. gentleman and then you know how he comes out of his shell later in life
0: Mm -hmm.
1: i would say the number one pick is um I, I don't know if it's pronounced Zeal or Z- Hannah Zyle with mm-hmm. um, Chrissy Metz. Her facial expressions and her tone yeah. of voice are so spot on. She is such a great study of Chrissy Metz. Um, my favorite like total package trio is all of the Kevins. The Kevins figure. are really
2: good. Yeah,
1: again, I wish we'd gotten to see more of Parker Bates kind of growing into that role. I do think also, though, by the time they were starting to get older, it's really obvious that Logan Shorter doesn't look that much like Justin mm-hmm. Hartley. But you kind of don't care. Like, I think he compensated a lot by really studying Justin Hartley, mm-hmm. uh, his his tones of voice, um, the the shiftiness of his eyes, which I noticed Kevin's eyes shift a lot. And so, mm. yeah, I think I think that's a great little trio. Yeah. So favorite guest appearance.
2: Oh, this was hard. I have to admit, I wrote down a couple because it was hard to narrow down I to was. just one. There's so many good ones. If we're going truly just like one episode appearance, mm-hmm. I think it's so fun that Brian Tyree Henry was on this show in season one, like right on the cusp of his sort of like real breakout stardom. <laughs> he has an amazing song, which I recently purchased the This ah. Is Us soundtracks mainly just to get his really cool, um, like blues number that he has on there. So yeah. for for true one scene uh, or one episode wonder I would say Brian Tyree Henry but for people that stick around like longer pop up here and there mm-hmm. I really love obviously Gerald McCraney as Dr. K like true icon of the this is us mm-hmm. world and I also love Felicia Rashad as Beth's mom who I think she just brings such a great energy of like a very different kind of family than what the Pearsons are yes. and, and especially in the scenes where it was like contrasting like how best mom Carol deals deals with being a widow versus how Rebecca deals with being a widow. And it's not saying either is better than the other. They both Mm -hmm. are like can get along really well, but just like looking at the different ways people cope with things and how that shapes their children, I think is Mm -hmm. um, a great addition. She and Rebecca also
1: show very different examples of oppression, I think. Yeah. So um, there was one who I thought was a one-timer and then I realized I think she came back for about Two seconds again um Pam Greer obvs, yeah, yes yes oh,
2: so good
1: what a get I mean they got a really great yeah what a get for the show um Jane Kasmerik um had a great part but I am going to because again I'm a contrarian I'm gonna go with something that is not, someone who is not a big name and someone whose role was not impactful but there's a very specific reason why I want to highlight this person Mark Prosh from um, who many people would know from Better Call Saul. He's Dan Wormald on Better Call Saul. He plays Nate on The Office, and he plays the car salesman in the episode The Car. Yeah, um, okay. So The Car is a really great episode for me because it's what I call a breather episode. It's an episode that absolutely gives us time to breathe after one of the most intense episodes of the show. Uh, the car also, the, the car theme that, uh, Siddhartha Kashla does is, which comes back in a later episode, one of the best pieces of like original comp- composing for TV. But the reason I like Mark Proksh is because he is a slightly offbeat normie and, mm-hmm. What I love is the few examples on the show of the Pearsons being contrasted with these everyday little normies. And uh-huh. they you have to actually confront their intensity as a family. <laughs> and What a great choice for this kind of like awkward neurotic Mm -hmm. guy to be a um, just a car salesman who's just trying to get the job done who is getting bowled over by the Jack Pearson intensity Mm train, and I think that was just a great little casting. I think Mark Prosh also like he has the making like I can't even call him a character actor because he's not quite prolific enough, but he has the makings of someone who could be a great character actor someday. So I just want to
2: give him like a little love. I Um, love that. I love the idea. Intensity is such a good word. It's like intense repression is what <laughs> the Pearsons are. And that sometimes, yeah, the world does not know how to handle them.
1: I like that Jack Pearson knows that he can whip out a speech as like a device. He's like, I am a plot device. I'm a walking plot device. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so on the topic of the intense Pearsons, if you could pick <laughs> three people from the Pearson family slash extended family, and I am including William in this. Okay, to, good. to spend a day with and actually enjoy your dream blunt rotation. Mm-hmm. what would it be
2: well I, funnily enough i think i went with the calmest trio that i could maybe the pearson intensity would be too much for me so i went with rebecca because i don't know if i made it clear up. i just love rebecca like one of my favorite tv characters mm-hmm. and then i'm gonna pair her with beth and william mm-hmm. um both because i like all three of them individually but i also feel like they would have great vibes together like we know beth and rebecca have a really nice relationship the Beth William relationship is lovely. Like Rebecca and William, it's a little weird that she like kept kept his son from him, but like they mostly seem to have worked it out, and they have a certain like generational bond. I think so. I feel like hanging out with the three of them would be really relaxing and nice.
1: I feel like their their bond on the death train, as much as it's supernatural, yeah. is which also so. Um, and again, li- loyal listeners, notes: my husband's a train enthusiast, and oh, wow. so. Yeah, he, um, he builds model trains, he works on a three and a half thousand square foot layout with his friends, he takes pictures of trains, so when I told him, like, honey, you gotta come, the episode where she dies, the, the train is a metaphor for the afterlife! Like, so, um, which, like you, I feel like that could have been the series finale, but, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, they have a. I I kind of love that he's, like, her escort through that.
2: It's so lovely.
1: I have almost the same trio as you, I have Rebecca, cause, and, um, because Rebecca, again, she is a very fun character and you show oh, that she's so really, fun. Like, she's so good at like tossing off everything and just like expressing herself and, um, and Mandy Moore has a real effervescence about her. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I would, I, I would go as specific as to say later life, Rebecca, yeah. um, William, and Toby. Oh, sure. Yeah, Toby, I, I have a lot of love for Toby as much and uh, I'll touch on this in a bit but as unlikable as toby gets at his worst i think Mm -hmm. toby um it just like he has perfect comedic timing
3: he Mm -hmm. has like this
2: little boy innocence about him at times so i love toby um i like that we both were both we were both like rebecca will count as our pearson and then we need to mm -hmm. include some people that are not the core pearson's because it would be too much to spend the day with
1: if there were any other pearson it
2: might be kevin
1: as much sure. as Kevin can be a sad sack, Kevin also you know he loves to make people happy,
2: so true, yeah, and you would get to use some of the celebrity wealth to your advantage, presumably in this <laughs> this dream day, yes, um, which character do you think was the most wasted or underdeveloped? This was tricky for me to think about i I kind of again did a little bit of a cheat and did two because I think. I think in the early seasons, as I've said, it felt like Kate did not reach her potential. So I don't think she was wasted overall, but I feel like it took her longer to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think in the, mainly just in season five and six, I feel like Tess kind of got the short end of the stick. Like it felt like they had really been building up her and her relationship to Beth and her coming out and her like cute little non-binary love interest. Like that was all quite central. And then it feels like, it's kind of like they resolved that and then she was just one of the kids in the group Mm -hmm. again and i wish that she had gotten a little more time in the spotlight particularly in seasons five and six yeah
1: well and it felt like they were really building toward that in season five and then what i feel is it i know this is a very cruel way to put it but it felt like they're like okay you know what deja is the one we're actually interested in um i also i understand why in that near future timeline, why they couldn't cast Randall's kids. I think they painted themselves into a corner mm-hmm. by casting, like very prominently featuring their adult selves. And it's like, what can you do? You can't have like Lyric Ross playing 20. Like right. she can play 16, but she probably can't play 20 or whatever. Uh especially like Faith Herman and stuff. Um I did notice in the uh last two episodes that they just entirely recast the like 10 or 12 year old versions of Kevin's kids and no one Yeah, Yeah, I noticed because it was when I was rewatching the third or fourth season finale when you see the kids and like, Mm -hmm. hey, Uncle Randall. And I'm like, oh, these are completely different kids and no one cares. Right. Oh, wait, sorry. I have to digress for one of my favorite, favorite things of the show, favorite quirks. I love how dedicated they were to casting exclusively blind actors to play Little Jack. Yeah. I love that they were so dedicated that throughout his life jack goes from being a slight little italian toddler to a cherub-faced <laughs> blonde boy to a chubby yep. little dark-haired boy yep. to a slim uh slim blonde, a sort of blonde. Twin, and then uh-huh. likes it like and i like there's i've said that i i think i've said this again about young uncle nikki but just sir that child is italian uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but he is i i will say also uh, I think his name, Johnny Kincaid, who plays like the one, the little Jack that we see the most in the mm-hmm. sixth season, he's so cute, and his little voice, like oh, what the hell in the and Twilight, yeah. like, <laughs>
2: And the fact that he like carries an entire episode at one point, oh, so, yeah. like I was like, how this is truly a toddler leading a network. TV drama like this is incredibly impressive kids. work from a very small child
1: <laughs> kids are famously so hard to direct and so obviously to be able
2: to communicate
1: with a child who communicates exclusively through words i'm like oh good job yeah. um so definitely he is not wasted or underdeveloped um i would say okay i mainly because he was a late addition mm-hmm. philip is a very obvious one Yeah, um, yeah, you know, like a good call and and because he immediately goes, he he makes a very hard turn from someone we're supposed to dislike to someone we're supposed to like. And I don't see enough in between with that. I also, this is like a secondary, I wish we'd maybe learned a little bit more about Elijah that made him worth keeping around. Um, mm. Because, you know, we see he's well integrated into the family and I get it. We're being positive about co-parenting and stuff. But like, I thought they were building toward like a serious Elijah-Kevin rivalry. And then we just skip over everything and they're cool now. And so that could have been cool. I don't know. Because I I thought they were liking Madison as a character.
2: Oh, yeah. Love Madison. Mm -hmm. I want truly maybe the funniest line in the entire series is when she and Kate have this big heart to heart. And then she says, should we start a podcast? (laughs) I find it so funny. Um, I thought they were setting up Elijah for like a dark reveal that he was actually evil. And I kept waiting for it. I was like, oh, I misread this entirely. He's supposed to be the nice man that... He has uh, major, like,
1: Mary's. capital NG nice guy energy.
2: For sure. Yeah. For and then sure. as it turns out,
1: he's just a nice guy. Like, sometimes people are just nice, right. though, I
2: guess. Right. And then it is, conf- and I guess with Philip, they tried to do the opposite. They're like, he's really going to seem evil. And then he's going to be fine, even though, like you say, we've not really done any, like, work to mm-hmm. show why he has changed so much. Yeah.
1: So are there any, um any twists or misdirects you were legitimately expecting that did not play out?
2: I didn't have any that were too strong. I remember when um in season three when Kevin's going uh to Vietnam to sort of research his dad's time there, I was wondering if they were going to introduce a fourth sibling, like that Jack had unknowingly oh. had a kid mm-hmm. in Vietnam, and that the uh, they kind of do they do the uncle Nicky reveal instead, which like I think probably was better than adding like a fourth <laughs> member to the big three big four. Um, the one yeah, the big four. The other thing that shocked me that they never did um, is that I thought for sure they were going to do a sort of what if episode of what if Kyle, the third triplet had lived and sort of what the Pearsons would have been like with their three biological children. And then what Randall's life would have been like if someone else had adopted him or taken him in or however that would have gone. They do the Randall therapy episode instead where he's imagining what if Jack had lived. So that's Mm -hmm. their kind of what if. But I was so sure that we would get a what if Kyle had lived episode at some point
1: that would be so great um yeah what and and it's funny because we're talking about the x-files in our next episode Uh and so like because i'm a fan of series that know how to occasionally do a, a high concept episode and then pull back and i think after the fire and vietnam are two great examples of very well executed high concept episodes they don't do them that often. Um mm-hmm. uh weirdly, another show that I think is amazing at doing high concept episodes, Malcolm in the Middle. I'm really waiting for people to
2: reappreciate that show. Yeah. Um but I feel like WandaVision maybe kicked off. They did an homage. So maybe yeah. that will be the start of a Malcolm in the Middle revival.
1: We all know how much we love Brian Cranston. Come on. Like <laughs> yeah, true. Um, yeah. So um yeah. Oh, I had never thought about Kyle living, and that is such a wonderful idea. Um, so there was a twist or misdirect that I would it's not so much that I was expecting it's that I wouldn't have put it past them that I'm glad didn't play out but there were quite a few fans who believed that um Nikki and the fact that you see that he was married by the end of Rebecca's mm-hmm. life that he would either marry Rebecca out of some weird perverted obligation or that he was you know doing the I'll pretend to be Jack by your bedside thing
0: mm-hmm. and I'm
1: really glad that they didn't do that Same. but I Honestly, I would not have put it past them. I also think sometimes they will commit to things like Nikki is married now, and they might not know where they're going with it.
2: Yes, I, I think I that actually, happened a lot in the last couple seasons.
1: I think, I think having Nikki just marry a random nice woman who he met, rushed as that romance was, mm-hmm. great choice. Great sure. choice.
2: Yeah, yeah, certainly better than I'm marrying my dream girl. I had one date with, like. <laughs> 60 years ago or something I think much more believable a literal manic pixie dream girl Um,
1: (laughs) all right um so who would you describe as your principal cast MVP and I define principal cast as considered a main
2: role for two or more seasons Mm -hmm. so I for me it's Mandy Moore like I truly love her entire performance here I think it's probably the most underrated performance like Sterling K Brown is incredible but as widely recognized as being incredible in the show very deservedly so but like I feel like he's really gotten his flowers and I feel like Mandy Moore like never got as much recognition as she deserved for playing I mean when you watch her scenes where she is this like idealistic naive 20 something that's like going on a road trip to LA and she does that so believably. And then you're watching her play a freaking 70 year old woman who is mm. like so quiet and introverted. And that feels equally believable. It's just like wild that she was able to do that in this performance. And I think really is the heart of the show and, and just so wildly talented. Like, I feel so good that I, I invested in Mandy more early. I invested her in her acting <laughs> career early and yeah. it has paid dividends uh, in This Is Us. She, when you think about it, I, you know,
1: I'm not going to add up the minutes, but by committing to, uh, you know, 30 something Rebecca and 70 something Rebecca, um, she kind of has the biggest job of all the principal casts yeah, because sure. there is no older Jack, and um, and I know that that wasn't originally the intention of the casting directors. I figure, I think the what is unsaid is if they couldn't get Diane Keaton, you couldn't do it because she <laughs> does <laughs> totally look like Diane Keaton, Oh, no, much like Diane
2: Keaton, it's yeah. wild,
1: um, and. With her spanning those two eras of Rebecca, you really like, I think I'm borrowing from like a review I've seen of a different show, but you see Rebecca's whole story written across her face. And I love that. So um, mm-hmm. I agree. I I wish she'd had a bit more recognition. She also at one point plays Teenage Rebecca, and she yeah. reminds me so much of herself in A Walk to Remember. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think it's a very sweet little, because she does... I mean, all celebrities get work done and she's probably had work done, but Mandy sure. Moore also has like permanent baby face. So definitely scary. Which is why
2: it's so impressive that she can play a seventy-something year yeah. old. Like the way she adjusts her entire physicality. The like voice. the way she hold her hands. Yeah. Or, yeah, the voice and the posture. It just like she feels so authentically 70 years old. And the fact that she can be a thirty-something doing that is absolutely wild.
1: The last thing I'll say about Mandy Moore and her eyes and her performance is as much as like I've complained about the portrayal of Alzheimer's, like I said, in the last season, you do see a lot of genuine aspects and um, the saddest, but best thing she does, the lost look in her eyes, mm-hmm. how lost yeah. Rebecca looks, because that is so I'm like, you've got some up close experience with this. Yeah, I'm sure. So, yeah. All right. So who would you describe as your principal cast
2: unsung hero? This was so hard. Like, I, in a way, it's like I want to say they all are. Yeah. I- I don't know. I uh, I wrote down John Flertus just because I feel like Miguel himself is so unsung that that like that's fair matches well. I also feel like Lyric Ross as Deja is just like one of the greatest, not even just child performance, just like greatest TV performances I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping her career like takes off in a major way after this because she's so good. And then we've mentioned him before, but I feel like Justin Hartley as Kevin of the main cast like he's the kind of the one that gets forgotten a little bit but i feel like he's also doing really good work to show the ways in which it's kevin projecting a movie star charisma to cover up his anxieties and not just justin hartley himself trying to be charming which is like quite a a tricky uh tightrope to walk
1: well it's kind of like in comedies when you write a stand-up comedian like how do you write a funny person in the mm-hmm. show everyone is funny how do you write a charming person in which everyone is a celebrity and charming um yeah I think I think Justin Hartley much like Kevin himself is really just stereotyped as being the pretty one in the cast yeah. so um I I was gonna say Lyric Ross but I always have to be contrarian and different um so <laughs> one my kind of runner-up for this is Chris Sullivan um yeah because i think what is amazing about chris sullivan is toby goes through a lot of transformation physically obviously i'm i'm glad they took him out of the fat suit you know there's a lot of with with brendan fraser this year there's a lot of uh discourse Mm -hmm. about fat suits and i'm glad that they made that a plot point as well um he goes through a lot of physical transformation career transformation family transformation and you see uh, toby's personality shift a lot but he always feels like the same person and i think chris sullivan really obviously figure it early on who toby is what makes toby tick what toby is insecure about um and and in ways that again when you go back and rewatch you start to see toby's humor impulse you know it's a lot like jack's hero impulse and so like that's why i love that line you fell in love with the coping mechanism Mm -hmm. like oh man that just makes you rethink all of toby um yeah he's great at playing anger he is amazing at playing anger um and yeah i think chris sullivan um he's great when he pops up in just those little roles every now and then like i think he is kind of whether you're doing a drama or a comedy he's kind of your guy for a supporting character and Mm -hmm. i think he was great on the show and as unlikable as toby got i always loved him
2: well that episode the hill where where we see kate literally like man again weird dream manifestation of like old old toby like old fun toby versus Mm -hmm. the new Toby it really that's where you really realize oh Chris Sullivan is giving a performance he's not just like existing on screen and delivering lines like he there was a very intentional choices made with like goofy early Toby and there were very intentional choices made with like later more mature Toby and the fact that he can play them both in one episode is very cool and it seems like behind the scenes he was quite like a heart of the show I feel like he has a goofy energy that brought them all together and that that it seems like he was a kind of a secret sauce for the ensemble, mm-hmm. so that's nice too.
1: There's an early episode where Kate's trying on a dress and uh, she walks out and Toby looks right at her and he makes this face and goes, shwang like immediately. <laughs> and I, I think about the later season, like he doesn't do that anymore yeah. because he's changed and his facial expressions have changed. And yet it, feels, it doesn't feel like Toby is a new character now, which sometimes happens with long running shows. It feels like Toby is a maturing man now. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, he's fantastic. Um, A great way to wrap this up on the topic of, you know, goofy heart of the show. I'm sure you've seen that wonderful video of the whole cast uh, during the wedding, uh, during the filming of the wedding episodes, dancing together. Mm -hmm. Griffin Dunn, worst dancer in the world. I want him at my party. And the best part, too, is you see, like, Mandy Moore is in her 70-year-old getup and, like, moving like a young woman, which is very, like, uncanny valley to watch. I love that.
2: Oh, I'm a big Mandy Moore Instagram follower, and she would post these hilarious photos because she had her her son when in the middle of uh, filming season five, and... She would post breastfeeding photos where she was in the old Rebecca makeup. And she's like, I'm sorry to my son for traumatizing him as like, dressed like an old, a very old woman, but like breastfeeding. And her, yeah, the the Mandy Moore Instagram sense of humor as old Rebecca, very funny.
1: And of course, the scene stealer in that wonderful video, we got to bring it back to SKB. He is... He's so cool. Like you said, he has such a prestige about him and he has such an inherent coolness about him that I think in terms of like actors who you just look at and think cool. There's like him, mm-hmm. Pierce Brosnan, um, <laughs> uh Idris Elba, like you think it like that's a cool guy. Mm-hmm. And I think like that just makes me think of how he is so good at balancing the fact that Randall as a character is really, really cool and really, really nerdy. Um, I think that's the one aspect in which Niles Fitch falls a little short because Mm. he shows like because it's like I wish during the college years we'd seen how Randall got to be cool because he obviously I accept that that guy grew up a dork but it's like maybe it's Beth brought it out in him but sure uh, yeah he's (laughs) Randall is so cool by the time he's an adult and I'm just like oh yeah like Sterling K Brown is such a great mix of cool and
2: dorky I would happily watch a whole spinoff of like Beth and um randall's sort of relationship from college i know that they did like an episode that loosely flashback to the years but it does feel like they go on quite a journey together from their Mm -hmm. more like introverted college selves to like you say the very cool but also very dorky couple that they are in the present day. And that would be very fun to see that blossom over the years.
1: Mm. All right. So we've reached the peak. And I always say this preamble peaks mean different things for different people. It can mean when was this best to you? um, When was it the most like itself? When were you the most into it? So when did This Is Us
2: peak for you? For me, I feel like it's season two both from an objective, um, like how popular the show was. And I also think like from an artistic point of view, and sometimes it's rare that those two things match up. But I think season two, that was when they did the big, the big fire episode was the Super Bowl episode, right? So that's always going to be, I'm assuming the most viewed episode of the series. Um, But I think season two is when the show, it took all the pieces that season one had laid on the board and just like, amped them up so much and started to add that depth and started to add the oh you thought Rebecca was just the the nice passive conventional mom but guess what when Jack was struggling like she was the one that pulled him out of that and here's all these layers that we're gonna put onto these stories so I think season season two is a really strong highlight for me followed pretty swiftly by season four which as I've said I think just really interesting um sort of unearthing of some of the uh some of the things that had been a little bit lost in the in the past seasons. Mm-hmm. So I also have season four.
1: I think season four is a great example of um, again the mixing of the high concept episodes with the um, with the serialized storytelling. Um, I also think season four is when you really start to realize these writers are smarter than we've given them credit for. Uh, I think that's I think that and maybe season three is the beginning of the unraveling of the myth of Jack Pearson.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, uh I will also say I think season three is incredibly underrated in terms of how it builds to so that. When I look at the balance of season three, there are a lot of like risky episodes that I don't think paid off as well as I thought. The last seven weeks, uh, Katie Girls is actually another one of those high concept episodes, not quite as strong as the others. Um, but like Songbird Road, like the reveal that Nikki is alive, which again, that's that's the reprise of the car theme. Um, Mm -hmm. That final, that final montage of Randall uh, going out to the couch and all the other things. And, you know, the discovery that Nikki is alive. Also, sorry, I thought about this with with William staying with them. I thought about this with Randall being in the doghouse. There is no way in that giant house that they only have three bedrooms. I'm sorry. (laughs)
3: Why why are you
1: going to the couch, Randall? You surely have a guest room. Why are you making your two girls sleep in one (laughs) bed? That's so mean. Um, But yeah, like. So season three builds toward that. I think the Vietnam storyline was mm-hmm. like the Vietnam episode is amazing, um, but I think season three—the only thing that makes it not the peak for me—is the Randall City Council storyline.
2: It's yeah. bad. really rough. It's it's rough. It, it <laughs> yeah. did introduce us to Jaywan, my favorite minor minor player. Mainly, let's be real, just because I think the actor is very attractive. But I do love Jaywan, so I'm grateful <laughs> for That's the political storyline. Yeah,
3: yeah,
2: yeah, true. Yeah. But other than Jaywana, yeah, the political stuff was all a little bit rough mm-hmm. for me.
1: Yeah, I love that they have a little bromance. But yeah, so season four, um, it specifically, if I had like one peak moment, it is that Randall therapy scene. It's such an a- ambitious, artistic choice. It's a great performance from Sterling K. Brown. And although she's there in voice only, and if you can tell from, this, from the TV shows I like, I love her voice. Pamela Adlin, amazing. Like, I... Mm-hmm. Again, I'm glad they got Randall the Black therapist, but I'm like, oh, that means I'm saying goodbye to Pamela Adlin. I love her. So yeah, season four, definitely a peak for me because season five and season six, you know, pandemic, damn, yeah. darn you, COVID, you know, um, like you said, low on the scale of things that ruined, but, um, you know, I, I'm i glad I wanted to have my comfort show. Yeah. Um, so how big is the gap between the best and the worst of This Is Us for you?
2: Well, this is, like, perfect because I actually think season three, as we're saying, it does embody the best and the worst. Like, my favorite episode Mm -hmm. of the whole series is the season three episode Sometimes, which is where Jack and Rebecca take their first road trip together. Um, We're seeing Jack in Vietnam trying to get to Nikki and dealing with somebody who may or may not be in the Viet Cong. And um, there's this, like, really beautiful and understated arc with Kevin and Zoe being in Vietnam together. And she, like, reveals stories about her um, abuse in her childhood and just, like... It's just lovely, understated, beautiful character study that I think is so good. And then that's also the season where we get these ridiculous Randalls running, you know, or not even just randall's running for city council randall's like buying a building to rehab and be a landlord like goes away (laughs) or oh no kate's accidentally sold toby's star wars toys and it's it's the the, the season three has so many rough moments and yet also has some of my favorite moments of the show so that season for me really encapsulates kind of the best and worst of what this is us can do which i will say to answer what your actual question Mm. was like i don't i think at its worst. This Is Us is just like a slightly corny network drama, Mm -hmm. which is perfectly watchable. And at its best, I think it's like very transcendent television. So I don't know if the gap is like huge, but I think that the highs are maybe even a little bit undervalued for how high they can be.
1: I think if like, I'd say if the best of This Is Us, which, you know, sometimes don't let me keep you, which I Mm -hmm. love when it does simple storytelling. And I think the Jack Rebecca Road Trip is a great example of simple storytelling. Don't let me keep you. Actually, okay, there's another um, underdeveloped character, Marilyn Pearson. Um, Yeah. yeah, um, It's when it has that lovely, quiet, simple storytelling, if that's its A plus, you know, it's Randall running for city council, Randall becoming a landlord, all that being, that's a C. Yeah. You know, it's not a failure, but it's a bit of a, eh, skip this episode, you know? Yeah. 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 So if you're going to recommend this show to a friend, what sort of preamble instructions or warning would you give
2: them? Well, this is fascinating. This is really just a question I have for myself. I can never tell if This Is Us so entered the zeitgeist that if I'm selling someone on it, I should just describe it as a show about a family. Or if I should try to preserve that twist in the pilot where you don't know they're all related. (laughs) So I don't know whether to say, oh, it's a show about people that all share the same birthday, which is how they like tried to sell it before the twist or if I should say oh it's just a show about a really cool you know intergenerational family these are questions I have not resolved for myself yet but I think mainly I would tell people that I think um season one is solid but it gets way better from there so if you're not quite jiving with season one like it might be worth sticking to season two to see if it if it um gets you there Mm -hmm. but yeah mainly I feel like it's a just kind of a good watchable show for everyone so Mm -hmm. I don't I don't feel like I need to warn people away from it too strongly.
1: Yeah. My warnings that I give people are it's more than a tearjerker. Yeah. Um, It's more than emotional manipulation. Slog through season one, like power through it. And uh, my last thing is because I hate people who ask me questions during movies. So I say Mm. like, write down the questions that you have. I guarantee you they will be answered.
2: That's a very good one. Yeah.
1: All right. So, Caroline, thank you so much for joining me on Peak Show. Tell us again where we can find you on social media, read your work,
2: you know, support you, whatever you need. Sure. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Caroline Sita. I'm on Instagram. I'm at Caroline Ceta writes. Again, something else I need to spell. Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S, as in I'm writing, not as in rights for Caroline Sita. Uh, I have got mostly enough of those. Um, and then you can listen to my podcast, which is, again, Roll Calling, R-O-L-E. Uh, we just wrapped up our Lord of the Rings series. So that's fresh on your feed if you are a Lord of the Rings fan. That's amazing. I'm going to check that out myself.
1: As for me, I've been your host, Bree Rohde. You can find me on Twitter at prune underscore underscore Tracy, or you can follow this podcast, which is probably a better follow on Twitter at Peak Show Pod. New episodes are out every other Thursday. And next week, we have the wonderful Andrew Jubin of We Hate Movies joining us to talk about The X-Files. If you want more TV and movies and music, You can go through our back catalog in which we talk about King of the Hill, Malcolm in the Middle, The Simpsons, The Office, Parks and Rec, uh, the Saw movies for some reason, because I was in that mood that day. Uh, And we've got episodes coming up on John Carpenter, on the millennial pop divas, including Mandy Moore. And we've got our Super Month coming up this summer on The Beatles. So thank you very much for listening to Peak Show.